here. How long? We don't know. We don't know if he's going to just poof. I don't know. Go up in smoke while we're on YouTube, but we have the one and only James Corbett here. Very exciting. Uh, and already the chat Corbett lives. Yes, he does. And <laughs> oh my God, I never thought I'd see James back on YouTube for any reason, which I have to say before we get into the topic today, we were talking before we went live. I do not understand why you are one of the most censored voices on the internet, James. You are the most even keeled, calm researcher, really. I mean, you, you, you seem a lot like if I were to go to a college class in the history of some of these topics, I would just listen to this this guy. And for yeah. whatever reason, I don't know. Uh, well, you don't know either. I, I would say, to be fair, I'm not one of the most censored, but I am censored. And uh, although... I will note for the person who's su surprised to see me back on YouTube in any form ever, I, I, I was surprised, as surprised as anyone, about a month ago, I woke up one day and just noticed, oh, my secondary, my backup YouTube channel was suddenly, poof, was just back. No explanation, no email, no notification of any sort, just suddenly my channel was there. <laughs> and I thought, I have no idea what this means or why it's happening, but I immediately posted a video just to say, I am never ever, ever going to post to YouTube ever again. If you want my work, go to CorbettReport.com. So so that video is there. Yeah. yeah. I'll have to go find that while, while you're explaining about the media matrix and we could play it for people at the beginning of it anyway. Okay, so you have this new series out of the media matrix. It's a history basically of mass media. It's fascinating. People can get it at CorbettReport.com, Corbett with two Ts. But you already have such a huge fan club. Everybody obviously already knows that. Um, maybe we could first talk about what what do you get out of the media matrix? Like if, if people tune into it, uh, what's the main point? What did you want to get across? Well, that's a that's a great question to start with, because I know this is not the sexiest topic. And most people are probably not clamoring for, oh, can you please give us some sort of you know history of the media documentary? But I will say I feel very vindicated. One of the comments on the most recent episode. So uh, was somebody saying uh, something to the effect of, you know, I, I, I didn't think I was going to be enjoying this, but actually, wow, this is fascinating stuff. So, <laughs> yes, thank you for that, uh, that comment, whoever left that comment, because I, I know, knowing this information, knowing how it fits into the world that we're living in and the incredible importance of this topic in particular, not just for the future of of our society, but for the future of humanity itself. I'm not overstating that. I really think the question, the fundamental question of what it means to be human is increasingly being shaped by our media technology. And I'm not necessarily optimistic about what that answer is going to be 20, 50, 100 years from now, given the way things are trending into the metaverse and everything. I think this is a vitally important topic. And like so many of these topics, the more ignorant we are of the history of what has led us here and what it means and the, the sort of the entire the matrix that we are embedded in of various concepts and ideas, the more ignorant we are of that history, the more likely we are to be led along by the nose to this or that into and suddenly, oh, now everybody's got the, the you know, the new Google glasses or whatever it turns mm -hmm. out to be. And why aren't you getting on board? And uh, I, I think it will be uh, to our detriment if we don't know about this history. And and I am also satisfied that, yes, this is an interesting story. Uh, I, I would imagine certainly for most of the people who are in my audience, even if you don't think you're interested in the history of mass media, you will be. <laughs> <laughs> 
You will be by the end of this talk, too, because we're going to sell it to you. And here's why. When you were bringing up the the you know, why why would it be important to know where we've come from and and to not repeat it because of that knowledge i actually think even more so a lot of times at least before i started watching your stuff or um you know reading some books on this topic even as somebody who was in mass media i thought i lived in a time and place that was unique not that i don't think i do but what I've gotten out of your videos actually is that these dynamics of power, profit, censorship have been around for the beginning of it. And it's just it's just the medium through which these dynamics are working themselves out that is different in our time and place versus another time and place, like the, the actual medium itself. But the, the dynamics of, of what shapes it and how it's used to control people is not is not that different because we often think like oh my gosh the news is so biased the media is so biased is so you know with censorship and blah but when i watch your stuff it's like oh okay this this is this is not new all of the i mean literally every single problem that we are facing are problems that have occurred at various times in history if anything perhaps the stakes are raised each time because the 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 scope of this communication becomes broader and they thereby more and more people are, are affected by it. But ultimately, it's the same dynamics at play, the fundamentally core same dynamics at play as they have been at least since the time of Gutenberg and the invention of the movable type printing press in the mid-15th century. And as, again, I hope people who have seen the first part or first couple of parts of this uh, this series will start to appreciate uh, the the truly the dichotomous nature of this mass media. It is this incredible tool for connecting people together and uh, spreading information, spreading new ideas, upending old systems and old established hierarchies of control, uh, freeing humanity. But it's also a potential vehicle for enslaving humanity all, all the more effectively, essentially, by controlling um, what information people are seeing. And that dichotomy, which... I think a lot of people understand has existed certainly in the internet era. It's this wonderful tool for communication, but look at the way it's being used and censored and all of this. But these are the exact same issues that were being faced by people looking at that printing press and the way that printing press revolution started to change the world 550 years ago. It's the same issues at core. It's just, how are they going to play out this time? And since we already know how this script plays out, in a sense, because we saw it happen with the Gutenberg revolution um, being co-opted co and uh, and uh, shunted away into what I call the Morgan conspiracy, um, which again is a fascinating little piece of history. But uh, it's this idea of taking this tool for communication and spreading of ideas, consolidating control over that technology in as few hands as possible, and then using it to, to shape people's minds. That's exactly what we have seen in the past couple of decades of the internet revolution. Incredible technology for flowering of human communication and all of this, but now it's being consolidated in the hands of the big tech giants and their um, fascistically related uh, government partners to control the conversation. And it is becoming, it's getting to the point where since 99% of what we get from the outside world is now coming through mediated reality of one sort or another, radio, TV, streaming, whatever it is, then if you don't have a voice in the electronic media, do you have a voice at all? 
You know, if James Corbett falls mm -hmm. in the woods and no one's there to hear him, does he make a sound, I suppose, <laughs> is the question. And that's that's why I think the stakes, as I say, the stakes are being raised. 550 mm -hmm. years ago, not everyone was writing books or even necessarily reading books. But at this point, everybody has access to this media technology, and it's where people get most of their information. Mm -hmm. Do you think also that perhaps we have a false sense of of access, I guess, to information in today's world. Whereas, I don't know, you're living five or 600 years ago. It's, at least you're like, I know I live in this little space and I've got this king or this, this priest or whatever. And they're in, you know, I know that they're controlling what people think and, and versus now we're like, Oh, look, we can find anything. And we don't necessarily walk around with the idea that we have centralized control over it still. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think this is true in a number of different aspects and facets of our lives, but spe uh, specifically in the media-related aspect. We feel that we have access to everything immediately. So I think there is a general sort of feeling amongst the general public who haven't put a lot of thought into this that, yes, we have so much information. Yeah, we're, we're good. You know, we don't... Everything, everything that anyone wants to say is everywhere. So it, it's fine. We don't have to worry about this too much. Um, and that is to our detriment. But even on a more fundamental level, um, this Media Matrix series that I'm releasing right now is in conjunction with a six and a half hour online media lecture course that I have uh, I, uh, also made available that goes into a lot greater detail on this. And in that course, I really drill down on some of the more philosophical aspects of what's going on here and the way media uh, technology hasn't just changed the way we communicate. Obviously, it does that. But it it changes the way we think about the world, the way we pr process information, what we think about the world. And uh, I, I often go back to Marshall McLuhan, who was talking about these issues 50, 60 years ago in incredibly for, insightful and foresightful ways. I'm talking about what the electronic media revolution really means and where it's going and how it's shaping our consciousness. And he talked, for example, about the way the advent of the printed word in uh, the mid 15th century started to mold human consciousness in a certain way. Um, as the population became generally literate, which it didn't need to be pre-printing press, obviously there were people who could write and there were people who could read, but that was not a large percentage of the population. Your average peasant or serf wouldn't have much need for reading and writing in their daily life before the printing press made books widely available. What does that do? The idea of taking information condensing it down into printed words and then putting them in lines on a page conditions us to uh, to uh, understand and process information in a certain way and with a certain lineality that uh, uh, an oral culture, for example, wouldn't necessarily have. There are different ways of speaking, of even thinking about and processing information if you're relating it in audio form than if you're reading it on a printed page. And then once you get into the electronic media revolution, now you're dealing with the idea of, okay, now we're back to some sort of oral culture or visual culture where you're seeing and hearing things, but you're seeing and hearing essentially the electronic ghosts of people far away and potentially even far away in time as well as in space. And what does that what does that do? What does that mean in terms of the way that we start to understand our relationship to the world? In a think about a pre-mediated world, 
back five, 600 years ago, when essentially 99% or more of the information you received about the world, you got from actual physical tactile experience with that world. But transfer that to today, today, where most of the information we have comes from books or TV or, or media of some sort. Uh, how does that condition our minds to understand our relationship to the world and what sort of information we take in versus what information we don't, how we learn about the world? Are you more likely to, if you want to know about something, are you more likely to Google it? Or are you more likely to go out and actually try to experiment or ask someone around you who has experience with it? Probably most people these days are going to Google it. Um, mm -hmm. So again, all of these things shape us and mold us in ways that we, like the fish swimming in the water. What's water? What's this water thing you keep talking about? I don't see it. Uh, it can't be that important. No, no, you yeah. don't understand. It's literally everywhere. It is what you are swimming in. In the, this case, I think media, it's everywhere. It's what we are swimming in. It's structured our lives in ways we can barely comprehend until we start thinking about it. And once we do, I think people can start to grasp the, as I say, the stakes get raised with each iteration of this technology. And now we literally have Zuckerberg trying to get us to strap on the goggles and step into the metaverse. You don't think that's going to change people's fundamental relationship to the world around them and the way they start to process the world? I think it will. Mm -hmm, totally. Well, when I right before I was leaving um, my job in TV news, which, by the way, this is one of my favorite parts when and I, it becomes at a perfect time because I was going to ask you about something I learned when I was in seminary. But real fast, when I was finishing up my TV news career, that was the next that was the next thing we were working on was virtual reality. Uh, I remember going through this training. I, it was total waste of a day. I don't even know what I, I was supposed to learn. And we never even used the technology. I don't even think still to this day they are, but they, I'm sure they will eventually, you know, where we had to wear these glasses and we had these trainers come in and teach us about how to use it. And, and yeah. And so it was basically like, how can we bring the news to you as if you're, you're living it? Like whatever the story is, you know, you're going to put on these, these glasses and start consuming it as if you were actually there like we were. Um, but to my religion question, um, when I was in seminary and I don't know if this is true, so you can, you can fact check it for me, but a, a lot of times the professors who taught like new Testament or Hebrew Bible, um, talked a lot about how truth was how, how truth was uh, seen, I guess, interpreted ver then versus now and had this idea, I guess, that like when you are in an oral tradition or even if you had a written manuscript, but you had somebody else reading it to you, that you you assumed a different nature of what truth is versus what we do today. Uh, th that it was like, assumed i guess that that there was a filter through which it was coming it was passed down uh you know it had more tradition it wasn't as important that something really happened versus its meaning like its meaning was more important necessarily than it's than the physical reality like i said i could have totally been indoctrinated but that that's what my professors used to talk about is that anything that you came across? Because as you were, you you have your Gutenberg uh, video, and and I, I thought a lot about that that priestly class that tries to censor, you know, after the the printing press, and then you have Martin Luther and his theses and all that stuff. And I've I've always said that it reminded me a lot of that that sort of reformation of knowledge because now we have a new priestly class, and you you sort of described it already with the government and the big tech censors and everything. 
But I'm curious if, if, what you think about that question of truth um, and the truth that's sort of passed down before versus now in these these new media platforms. Um, do we assume a different nature of truth versus the way that people did when it was passed down orally? I, I think there is absolutely something to that. It unfortunately is extremely difficult to tease out the various aspects of what's going on there because in one sense you have the literary traditions of various time and place and cultures. There are different literary tropes and ideas and, and storytelling forms that get passed around at different times. And to some extent that is predicated on the media technology that's available or not available in the case of preliterate oral cultures. Surely, yes. And so, for example, if you go back to the, the old Homeric texts or, you know, the Ulysses and things like this, the Odyssey, uh, it's very strange to read them in printed form because there's these, these things that get, like these little phrases, the wine-dark sea and, and things like this that get repeated over and over and over and over in different passages. And you, you're, when you're reading it as a printed text, you're thinking like, why, why do they keep repeating these types of set phrases and things over and over and over? It's because you're reading it on a printed page, as opposed to the people who were originally consuming this were hearing it. This was meant to be recited. It was meant to be this thing that was actually probably memorized and passed on from generation to generation for centuries before it was ever put down on paper. And so there are different tropes and different ways of presenting that information. So uh, there is definitely a media aspect to the way that information gets presented. And then uh, in addition to that, there are cultural layers and expectations and things in terms of storytelling. So that, yes, people might in a certain place or a certain culture have the expectation that when they're hearing a story about this figure that went around and did these things, well, are we supposed to think this is literally a, a like, when you hear him say something, that's literally a quotation word for word that someone wrote down or is this just, this is what he said, this is the message that he was giving, that kind of thing. Uh, again, there's different expectations that go on. And then, as you say, we in 21st century, looking back at texts that were written a thousand, two thousand longer ago, trying to map our understanding of storytelling onto that, which to some extent has to be shaped and, uh, and molded and formed by our expectation given the media that we have. So we... We look at uh, documentaries on History Channel or whatever, and that is an attempt, sometimes ham-handed, um, but at any rate, it's an attempt to visually represent something authentic, to show this thing happening and to try to get people saying the actual things, the words that they spoke. It's an attempt to try to recreate an actual reality as if someone was walking around with a camera several hundred years ago capturing these scenes on film. Obviously, we know it's fake, it's staged, it's an actors doing this, but the idea, the impression, the subconscious impression we get is this is a camera mm -hmm. recording of what was happening several hundred years ago. And so that's, I think, the way we, we approach and we take matters that are supposed to be serious, nonfiction, well, this must be an attempt to present the truth as if someone was walking around with a camera or a microphone recording things. But that's not necessarily the context in which people were thinking about this a thousand, two thousand longer ago. They were thinking of it more as these are stories which we sh shape into our lives. So there is, there truly is a difference in the way that we perceive things that uh, that goes on to at least to some extent because of the media technology that's there to represent these things and recreate them for us. I don't think people would have had the ability to 
to to even conceptualize the sort of recorded version of history that we have now. Because, of course, we can go back to things that happened 50 years ago and watch the actual footage uh, as they happened and listen to the people saying the exact words that they happened. Obviously, people couldn't have done that several hundred years ago. So they couldn't have even conceived that that existed, that you could record a moment in time and replay it later. Now we take that so for granted that we think, well, everyone must have always thought this is this is what history is. You're trying to get as close to that recording in the room as you can. It, mm -hmm. I, there's so many deep, fundamental, philosophical things here that uh, excites me. It's very interesting to me. Um, but unfortunately, again, I think a lot of people don't think about these, th the way the technology has shaped them, themselves. I mean, ultimately, this is about us and how we perceive and conceive of the world around us based on the way that we have uh, been indoctrinated in, in a sense into accepting that these this electronic technology is a, a part of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it it definitely it's a nice experience to even think about trying to if you tried to live your day one day of your life without any mediated experience whatsoever no reading no listening to anything you know only living in the world what does that look like what does that feel like and can you imagine living your entire life that way how differently would you would you be experiencing reality how would you go about trying to explain your own uh, history or you know things that you know to other people would that be shaped by the types of um, uh, experience that you have living in the real world, as opposed to, well, I read this, you know, in a book somewhere. Mm -hmm. I have a short answer that I've, I've, I've told people before about when I asked how I started down the path of exiting mainstream media or whatever you want to call it, legacy news. It really began, I think, as I was, I moved to Seattle and I started hiking and I was spending many, many hours for the first time in my life in total silence. Not like you just said, not listening to anything, not reading anything, totally disconnected from media. And I, I think becoming comfortable with silence allowed me to become curious about myself and my reactions to media or just to the world around me, people and their thoughts and, and thoughts that I was being exposed to. And because I was taking a pause in that, I it, it sort of gave me some, I don't know, some level of comfort with, with self-awareness, which I think sometimes can be disconcerting for us when we're used to focusing on events outside of our, outside of our, our like really our sphere of even influence. Like I, now that I'm sort of way down this path, I've done the opposite with media that I, I, I was doing before. Whereas now I'm like, I don't, unless I grow it outside my house or I see it happen, I don't really know if I know it actually happened at all, or even if it happened the way that people are telling me it happened and maybe it did, or probably it did, but there's at least 1% of me that's like, I don't know. And so I've become a lot more focused now on like, what's just outside my house or inside my house, you know, my, my, yeah. my child, well, you know, my husband. Again, that, that brings up an interesting point related to your previous question as well, is that, to some extent, our conception of the truth is, again, it's it's this idea that if you just had the camera in the room recording things as they were, then you would, that that's it. That's the truth. Mm -hmm. Now you know the truth of this thing that happened. But actually, 
the the truth of this this particular thing or this person saying this thing or whatever event you're thinking about is embedded in this incredibly wide context of mm -hmm. all these sorts of things that you can't capture on a camera. You can't capture the political, social context of this statement in this particular way. All you know is these words were said. It, again, assuming you can trust that the audio and video hasn't been tampered with, which at this point we can't trust, right? Because we know deep fakes are a thing right. and increasingly so from here. But even if we were to disregard that, even if you just have a recording of a thing that happened, does that tell you the truth, the underlying right. truth about that? What what does the statement mean in its context, and how do we how do we process that? So, to some extent, maybe our conception of the truth is limited by this conception that it's just well, it's just a, a matter of recording sort of what happened, and there there you have the truth. No, 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 no. You have to know a million things in order to process that simple, seemingly simple truth. And how do you do that? Now, I want to put out there, because I know some people will interpret what I'm saying as if I am advocating for some sort of neo-Luddism and we should all just cast off all <laughs> media technology and you know live in the woods or something. I'm not saying that, of course. I'm not advocating what people should or shouldn't be doing. But I really do think we at least should be consciously aware of media and how we use it or how it uses us. And this is an incredibly important point that comes up again and again with McLuhan and Postman and other people who have talked about this. You can, you can go out there with the intention of, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to read this book in order to learn this thing. I'm going to watch this TV show to be distracted and laugh for half an hour, and then I'm going to go back to my reality. But the, the media itself is shaping us and our, our habits, our opinions, even the way that we think about the world in ways that we're not always aware of. So um, one example of that that I always point back to, because I think he phrased it so beautifully, in Neil Postman's uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death, he talked about the, you know, when television arrived and people started saying, oh, it'll be a great tool for educating children. Now we can keep them, you know, entertained and, and show them various things as we're educating them. And he said, well, what has been the real result of that? You look at something like Sesame Street, Sesame mm -hmm. Street doesn't teach children to love learning. It teaches children to love television. <laughs> and I think, I think that kind of hits the nail on the head. It's only certain things can be portrayed or, or conveyed via this medium. Mm -hmm. So that's all you talk about. That's the way you portray it. But how do you, how do you show on television someone, someone deliberating, someone thinking about something and going, well, mm -hmm. it could be this or it could be that. I mean, you can have talk shows where people you know, are talking and debating, but even that is limited by, you know, two minutes and then you've got to cut to commercial mm -hmm. break and you got to have some drama. And so people have to be shouting at each other. How do you, how do you present various aspects of the human experience that can't be condensed down into that medium? You can't. So, and then we start to see that experience and see what's, see the TV world and then start to emulate that world. So in a way we're creating a vision of a world that doesn't exactly exist. It's it's this TV fake reality that we then start bringing into real reality because it's all we've ever seen. Mm -hmm. It's hard to to allow a human to go through the discovery process when someone basically discovers it for you and puts it in front of you. Just watching my two year old develop over the last couple of years, it's not just learning. It's not just that she gets that there's two shoes and one fits each foot correctly. But the process of, 
of like putting the actual shoe on and feeling that it hurts when it, when this one's on that foot and, or, or like learning, she used to think that every, she calls everything a bee, every insect is a bee. And she used to love touching every insect and then she got stung and she, and she learned through that process, very different than just watching a TV where it's like, Oh, I mean, how do you present that? How do you present the sting and the, the itch and the pain. And and then, you know, now she wants to kill every insect in sight. It's fascinating to watch how she's just turned on insects. But, um, but I, but I've seen just that process. And I used to wonder too, when I was in high school, I had to go to the library. I had to go through the process of like looking, looking in the catalog, where is the book that I needed to pull the book out. And even like you said, that's different than somebody who thousands of years ago would listen to somebody talking versus pulling the book out. And yeah, how does that shape all of us? I wanted to ask you about that related to you discussed the nation state, the rise of the nation state, how media uh, allowed us to, I guess, I don't know if the words coagulate or group together, and 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 then how does that turn in? to this uh, contentious term globalization, which I have mm, people yeah. discussing. But, but, but first, if you're going to be sitting watching the media matrix, you got to have a great glass of wine because it's, it's a uh, deep thinking, robust, philosophically based history that uh, just, I don't know, just it's, it's robust, just like my wine. So go to allisonwinepromo.com, get yourself some high altitude Malbec uh, these are all from Argentina, the Rogue Malbec. I, come on, does anything describe James Corbett better than Rogue? So go get the Rogue Malbec in honor of James Corbett or get one from 9,000 feet and uh, support my work. You get 50% off the wine itself and 50% off shipping. You can also go to TwinEngineCoffee.com. You get 10% off your first order. These are USDA certified organic roasts. They're high altitude, small business. Uh, all operation is in Nicaragua. These are great coffees. There's light roast, there's dark roast, there's a Katura tea which is tea made from the coffee fruit. I forgot to change you over to twinenginecoffee.com slash Allison for the banner. And uh, I like to cold brew mine for 24 hours. It's very good for the summer. So whether you like tea, coffee, or wine, go uh, go check out my sponsors. They help keep me in business. And uh, let's get back to James. Okay. He's so nice. He'll even sit through the promos. Um, okay. So yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about You're the- You're a pro, today. by the way. That was I'm very, a pro. very well done. Oh, uh, that wasn't even my best one. Um, I'll have to send you some of my best ad reads. Then you could tell me how that's shaped me, uh, how, how having sponsors shapes, shapes my media, but let's talk about the nation state. Yeah. So, so where, where in the history of media, does that come in? Is it with the printed word? Uh, cause I, that's, I remember learning about it when I was watching your Gutenberg yeah. series and then, and then how does, how does the media we're dealing with today affect the term globalization and what does that what does that mean so and what's yeah. the difference i guess between okay. the nation state and a globalized world right excellent excellent questions and um actually first of all let me just say yes this is this is a real bookshelf where you know these are i i have real texts here see i have to say that because last time i was on i the, when you interviewed me uh, you made some statement about me waiting in the green room and someone oh, took yeah. that quite literally as if, uh, is that a green screen behind you, James? I thought it was a real bookshelf. <laughs> yeah. No, this is not a green screen. This is a real but Couldn't you be deep faking fact... us right now? I mean, couldn't you be pulling fake books out and deep faking uh, us? You know, I mean, good point. Sure. Maybe that's all being done in post, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, I believe you. But that actually speaks to something, doesn't it? That the people can't even fathom you know i'm actually a real person in a real room you know like yeah. no this all green screen it can't be don't, anyway don't i just think 
don't let me forget to pitch this question your way. I, I want you to stay on the nation state and globalization, mm -hmm. but I, I can't remember who it was who was on Brogan and made a point that when there's no truth, when people get to the point where they're so skeptical of the, the possibility you could ever even know something is real, that all that matters at that point is power because mm -hmm. you, you can't have discussions based on, on truth anymore. Yeah. So, so whoever wields the heaviest stick, we're like back to where we were, you know, thousands of years ago now. Yeah. Um, and no, I want to incredibly I important point. flag incredibly that for important. you. Okay. Uh, nation state first. So I uh, right. just got my copy of understanding media, Marshall McLuhan, um, who wrote about this at length. He says uh, of the many unforeseen consequences of typography, the emergence of nationalism is perhaps the most familiar. Political unification of populations by means of vernacular and language groupings was unthinkable before printing uh, turned each vernacular into an extensive mass medium. The tribe, an extended form of a family of blood relatives, is exploded by print and is replaced by an association of men homogeneously homogeneously trained to be individuals. Nationalism itself came as an intense new visual image of group destiny and status and depended on a speed of information movement unknown before printing. Today, nationalism as an image still depends on the press, but has all the electric media against it. Hmm. In business, as in politics, the effect of even jet plane speeds is to render the old national groupings of social organization quite unworkable. In the Renaissance, it was the sp speed of print and the ensuing market and commercial developments that made nationalism, which is continuity and competition in homogeneous space, as natural as it was new. By the same token, the, heterog the heterogeneities and non-competitive discontinuities of medieval guilds and family organization had become a great nuisance as a speed up of information by print called for more fragmentation and uniformity of function. So you, you'll forgive me for not having quoted this passage in the Gutenberg Conspiracy where I talked about this. But it's some pretty heady philosophical stuff. But I think the underlying point is there. There, there was no way to really connect with a broader grouping than the tribal basis, the sort of the village that you lived and grew up in before print made this incredible hetero homogeneity of ver the vernacular of, of language itself. Suddenly, well, at the very least, we're a people who speak the same tongue and that can all be rendered into print and then disseminated over this geographical area much more quickly than word of mouth could possibly do. And to bring those people together into some sense of, okay, we are a people, we are a nation. And well, now a nation state can come into existence. So before that point, you had monarchs obviously reigning over the space that they, they claimed as their geographical territory, but there was no sense that this was a nation state. It was just, we are all subjects of the king. But now like suddenly you have, have this idea. Team. Like we're not going to have a soccer team or something uh, based on Yeah, that. yeah, exactly. So now you have this, this, this possibility of starting to think about it. But as he says, the electronic, the electric media, radio and television start to explode that because now it, it accelerates the process well beyond, now we're beyond sort of nations. Now we're into the global reach of things. And he talks about this in his introduction. After 3,000 years of explosion by means of fragmentary and mechanical technologies, the Western world is imploding. During the mechanical ages, we had extended our bodies in space. 
Today, after more than a century of electric technology, we have extended our central nervous system itself in a global embrace, abolishing both space and time as far as our planet is concerned. Rapidly, we approach the final phase of the extensions of man, the technological simulation of consciousness, when the creative process of knowing will be collectively and corporately extended to the whole of human society, much as, as we have already extended our senses and our nerves by the various media. Whether the extension of consciousness, so long sought by advertisers for specific products, will be a good thing is a question that admits of a wide solution. Um, fascinating stuff. He, I think he, uh, he was writing this in the 1960s. And wow. I think he's bang on about what's happening in the 2020s and beyond as we approach the metaverse and the the full-on electronic simulation of consciousness, the 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 sub subsuming our identities in this electronic embrace that extends across the globe, abolishes space and time. We can interact with anyone anywhere mm -hmm. uh, in any language. It'll uh, auto-translate for us and all of this. We are starting to get that sense. So that starts to erode that nation-state idea into now we're all humanity. It's a global embrace. And mm -hmm. as he says, what that means, well, that's a problem that admits a wide variety of solutions. We don't know yet, but it certainly is fundamentally transforming the nature of humanity itself. And yet I constantly hear how, though we have all these means of connecting, like you're talking about, I could be friends with somebody halfway across the world. More and more, there are researchers coming out publicly talking about the negative effects of these media on our experience as humans, um, mm -hmm. depression and isolation. And so is it like really living, I guess, what does that even mean to have a, mm -hmm. what is a relationship? I mean, what, you know, on one hand, I guess I can see the value of being able to keep up with friends. Uh, but I think... I, I don't know. There's just something so different about going on a walk with a friend or doing something that you create an actual object together. Like you're, you're, you're working on your garden and you, you have a bean plant and you can eat it together. you like some, something like that versus yeah. just checking in on Facebook where uh, I don't know, it just it, it, that in and of itself is obviously very curated, but even if yeah. you're communicating through that yeah. medium, is that even the same? Um, Cause it just yeah. seems like it's let us down in a lot of ways incredibly important point that goes towards where we where we were really taking this because you raise a point that in a certain sense is obvious to everyone i mean it's certainly when you're reading printed page you know you're not getting the smell you're mm -hmm. not getting the taste you're not getting the sight you're not getting anything really except what you generate in your mind mm -hmm. um when you move to radio suddenly at least okay you've got audio you can hear what is happening the rest you have to generate in your mind with tv now you've got the video and the audio so now you can start to sort of put yourself in that picture but you know you're not getting it you don't get the smells or the taste so we can have this conversation electronically and i'm not looking at you allison i'm looking at my webcam because i know if i look at you i'm not going to look like i'm looking at you right right so right. there's all these things that, that go in, in on this and I, we're not in the same room you, you can read my body language a little bit, but not completely. And you don't know, you can't pick up on the subtle clues of communication that are mm -hmm. part of the human experience that perhaps are we losing those particular cues and those, the ability mm -hmm. to read nuance and, and sort mm -hmm. of the contextual clues because so little of our lives is actually spent in real life space at this point. And where does that go from here? So our solution to this 
rather than to sort of put the brakes on this or say, hey, what's going on? Or maybe to sort of consciously think about these and start to make the conscious adjustments. Okay, I'm in a mediated conversation here. It's not a real conversation. No, no, no. Our solution to this is to go, well, we just haven't immersed ourselves enough Enough, in this media yeah. so now instead of just the audio and the video and that no now we're going to strap on the metaverse goggles right. we're going to be in this 3d world where we can allison we can go for a walk and we can share a meal together and we can do these things in this media space that we're sharing and we can have the the whatever they call it the haptic sensors and things that will give us the tactile feedback i can touch you on the shoulder and i can feel your shoulder and all of these things we can simulate all of this experience well who needs the real world anymore we can just st strap ourselves directly into the media and that raises uh, the specter of a different philosopher who i do talk about in my online course baudrillard john baudrillard who wrote about simulacra and simulation and the idea that the real, whatever that is, is perhaps ultimately unattainable, but certainly is becoming more and more and more blurred as more and more we are creating copies of reality within a system of mediated experience that we then take for reality and start modeling the world after. And in his book on uh, simulacra and simulation, he writes about Disney World as being one of the great examples of this. Dis what is Disney World? It is a real space that has been created to bring into reality the fake space of Walt Disney's Imaginarium. But then you could take that a step backwards because, well, Walt Disney was working from templates of reality, right? Like castles and things that are part of our, our imagination. So he was bringing that into the world via cartoons, which then become reality. But even then, when you think of a castle, are you thinking of this particular castle on a hill in Ireland or something? Or are you thinking about the you know storybook castle that you saw illustrated in a book somewhere? Where Where is that line between reality and this mediated simulation of reality? And how do we cross it? This is where it starts to get really, I think, philosophically deep and disturbing. Um, because at, at the end of the day, we start to lose the sense that there is reality anymore. That's that's such a good point. And on the note of deep and disturbing, we're going to go on to some of those topics, but you got to go to either if you want to keep watching live, you're gonna have to go to Rumble or Rockfin if you're watching this on YouTube, because uh, I don't know. We're, I just don't, I want James to be able to just spitball. I know he's been very careful. Not really. Um, but but I want I, I had a couple questions from locals, which I should say, like about depopulation and things like that. And so we're going to get into it. Um, if you haven't joined my editorial board over on Locals, go to allisonmorrow.locals.com. If you sign up, you can put questions in ahead of time for people like James. I got a bunch of questions for him. Hopefully, I'll get a few in before he goes. So again, go over to Rockfin or Rumble right now if you want to keep watching live, if you're watching this on YouTube. And everybody should definitely go check out the Corbett Report, uh, corbettreport.com, where you're going to get the Media Matrix series. At, you're releasing, what, one a week, James, right now? That's right. And the third and final part will be next week. Okay, awesome. So everybody go there. Um, thank you for watching on YouTube and we will see you on the other platforms if I can figure out how to do this without cutting everybody off. Okay, let's see here. Remove. All right, bye. <laughs> okay. Phew, yeah, you can just feel how, right. how you can feel the freedom. Um, <laughs> when you were talking about the last part, 
it made me think that a, really a lot of this brings up the question of existence itself. When you were talking about the really real and the existence of like, what does it even mean to exist? I was thinking about the first time I ever saw a corpse, like de like my, the lady who basically, you know, she was a, my babysitter and, and was, you know, half raised me um, when my parents were working. And I went to her funerals, the first open casket that I had ever gone to. And I touched her hand and it was cold as ice and hard. And like, that's not, you know, it doesn't feel like Mrs. Roberts and looking at her, you know, there was makeup on her that she wouldn't normally wear. But then even without that, if say it had looked exactly the way she was, I could just tell it wasn't her. Like there was something about yeah. her that wasn't there anymore. And, and so when you were talking, I was thinking to myself, like, it, 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 there's something about a human, whatever you call it, um, the pneuma or whatever it is that, like you said, like the farther you get away from it, what is existence? Does that person even really exist in your presence? Like, what does that mean? Can you exist in the meta world? Like really? Um, or is yeah. that just like the open casket version? You know, it's funny we because are. we laugh at those, you know, the old timey people who are like, oh, the camera will steal your soul. I don't want to you know, pose for a picture. Oh, you know, those silly Luddites, right? You know, we we have honestly lost something in our complete embrace of this mediated version of reality. And that might be the best way of putting it. The difference between a real, live, breathing human being and a corpse. There is a difference, obviously, and and that's tangible. The difference between a conversation with a real, live, breathing human being in the same space as you and a media version of that. There is a difference. And yeah. Um, you know, what do we, what do we make of that? Um, mm -hmm. I, that's the story I tell in part two of the media matrix is about the, uh, the, when the radio was introduced to Saudi Arabia and the Saudi King, right. um, the clerics come to him and say, this is the devil in a box. We must ban this. And so the King is like, ah, okay. If this is the devil in a box, I, I will ban it. All right. Okay. And then he realizes the radio could be a good tool of social control. So he's like, ah, I think I want this, but I won't just come out and go against the clerics because that might not work out well for him. So he's like, okay. So he arranges with the radio engineers to be playing the Quran when the, the time comes for him to, to turn on and test the radio. And uh, what, well, we're listening to the Quran. Could it be that the devil is speaking the Quran or maybe this isn't a devil at all? Um, again, speaks to the idea when this, technology was first introduced people really thought there was something spiritual happening something something really related to the the nature of the universe and th this this is some sort of magic that that we shouldn't be messing with mm -hmm. and again we can laugh at those kind of old-timey antiquated notions but maybe to our detriment maybe we should recapture a sense of the sort of the magic nature of this and the fact that maybe this at the very least, even if it is something we do want to be engaging with and using, we should perhaps be a little bit more careful with the ways that this this media technology is is shaping us and starting to mold us into certain types of people or removing certain aspects of the human experience from from our experience. I I wonder, I mean, how can you possibly tease this out? But imagine taking a child who has grown up in the internet age completely mm -hmm. steeped in internet technologies and media and there's their social sense of how to relate to other human beings being shaped by social media i shudder to think of the types of people who will be out there as adults in the world interacting with others yeah. 10 20 years from now yeah. who have 
literally been shaped through social media. That isn't mm-hmm. we as people who I, I won't age. I, I won't guess your age. I'm, but I, I'm going to assume. <laughs> I, I'll assume you're. You grew up pre uh, pre social media yes. total saturation, right? Like as I did, we know that what happens on social media that isn't real conversation. That is not conversation that would happen in your real life experience. Mm-hmm. That's a simulation of conversation that happens online. But people who grow up in that that culture will start to think that that is real conversation and will start to have that form of conversation in their real life. That scares me, actually. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, 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 I mean, from your perspective, it'll give you lots of great new videos to do for the Corbett Report. So, <laughs> okay, let me try to get to some questions because there were there's a lot of uh, a lot for you there. Um, is there a link to foreign non-Western media matrix systems? If he has looked into it, what do these systems look like outside of ours? All right, I'm not sure precisely what he's referring to there, um, because of course one of the factors of the homogenization of humanity that has taken place with the global embrace of electronic consciousness, as McLuhan puts it, is the the widespread distribution of the technologies themselves. So that, a, you know, a Chinese smartphone is not going to be fundamentally different than an American smartphone, right? So I, 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 on the structural level, on the technological underlying infrastructure level, the media is pretty much the same anywhere you go. How does that play out in terms of the own the each local flavor of this uh, is obviously circumscribed by various cultural and political contexts. So there are, I mean, I, one thing that I think is per- perhaps most interesting to look at is the types of overt and covert political censorship that take place in various places. Because as as you know, as I certainly do know, there is censorship that takes place in the Western developed free democracies, you know, yay, there's no, we're not like the Soviet Union. No, of course, censorship absolutely does take place uh, in various forms. But generally speaking, it is not the overt government stepping in with the ban hammer, stopping people from speaking. Generally, it's embedded in this corporate matrix of, you know, at this point, big tech, obviously, is determining who can speak and in what contexts and in what ways. Um, and, and so that provides its own layer of, of structuring. And, and as I make that point at the end of part one of the Media Matrix series, I think that's probably the more effective form of control rather than burning books and censoring and stopping people. That's never really fundamentally worked to, to suppress ideas throughout history. But making people believe they have access to everything and mm-hmm. giving them all this choice and all these these ideas, they don't know what's being excluded from that conversation because the power has been centralized in the hands of a few gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Whereas somewhere like China, I would imagine the Chinese population is under no delusions that right. they're, you know, they have they have unlimited access to all information. No, they know. They can see it happen in real time. Certain search terms start to trend. Yeah, lie flat movement or whatever, and then then they're taken off. They're scrubbed. They will not be allowed to search or use those terms anymore because the government outright controls what they can say. So there are different flavors of ways that this happens in different places depending on the political and social context. But it's kind of it amounts to a similar thing in the end, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? Yeah, and they don't have any uh naiveties about the government surveilling them either i i interviewed a friend of mine in shanghai about trying to get out during the lockdowns and she freaked out the next day and was like take down the video 
I'm too nervous. They're going to come get me before I can get out of here. And I'm like, damn girl. I mean, that's pretty bad. But then I started thinking, you know, I mean, I don't know how different that is from where I am. It's just that I have this false assumption of, of, of my freedom, I guess, uh, here, but more and more, I mean, we're seeing overt examples of that, that being, um, infringed upon when it comes to civil liberty. So like, I don't know, but you're right. No, she's totally like, she's, I start from the standpoint of, eh, they're probably, I mean, what am I doing? They're probably not, but they might be where she's like, no, they definitely like 99% are paying attention to everything I'm doing. And maybe 1% are not like it, we're, we're at the opposite ends of the the spectrum. And you're right. Like is which one's worse? The one where you're, I mean, maybe they're both kind of the same in, in nature. Um, but when you're bringing up the point that you think you have that, that illusion that you have all this access to information. And so even just the idea of Googling something, well, I just, this, I Googled it and like, I have so many journalist friends who think that by doing that, this top search results are literally the most authoritative. Like they really believe that it just organically appeared in front of their screen. And, um, and then it, you know, it's, they don't have to go like 10 pages down, or maybe it's not even going to be there at all. Um, these are the people who are reporting the news and, and, you know, telling us the truth about what's going on. And, and they're totally brainwashed as far as, as how curated that content is. Whereas like, like you said, if I'm working in the news in China, I mean, I don't know, I'm probably going on the assumption that, that the stuff that I'm learning about or what I'm saying is uh, manipulated and everybody just assumes that. And maybe that's the, that's the better place to be. At least, you know, what you're dealing with. Um, okay. I want to get into the topic real fast of depopulation. This person basically saying, uh, great fan of your work, been on a learning journey since he discovered it or she discovered it three years ago, but struggling with the supposed depopulation agenda struggle comes in part from the fact that I find it so difficult to believe despite past historical events that demonstrated the feasibility of evil plans, but two objections I think are more reasonable and rational, rational. And I wonder what you think. Okay. There is the fact that someone like Bill Gates has made his fortune on the principle of selling to lots of people. And it seems it's still the case. So if past actions are the best predictors of future behaviors, one would have to guess that Gates still needs lots of money to continue making lots of money. And what's the aim of having so much money if there's no one around to be bought anyway? My second objection is that a depopulation plan stemmed in the eugenic ideology would require an order to be conducted that the elite somehow would think quite differently from other people. For example, in conducting action plans over several generations without deviating, which seems to me like giving them a lot of credit and self-restraint, almost a sacrificial state of mind that would meet for me seem similar to sacrificing oneself for the greater good of humanity. I believe most of them to be more selfish than that. However, since I've never met such powerful people, I may be completely mistaken. Many thanks for your reflections. All right. Excellent questions. And these are important points. I, I'm glad that people are starting to wrestle with this. I would say regarding the first point, uh, the in a way, the, the, the questioner almost answers their own question because they're saying, what would be the point of just getting more money if there's not people to buy with the money or whatever it is? What is the point of just amassing more money? We at the lower level of the power pyramid tend to think that money is the goal that amassing money and makes makes your status and that's who you are and that's how you get power in this world is through money but we so we tend to think of money as the goal because at the lower levels of the power pyramid we don't tend to have enough of it and yeah. sometimes struggle to make ends meet at all um whereas it's hard to put yourself in the non-scarcity mindset of someone who's a billionaire or hey better yet a central banker or someone who literally creates the money out of thin air for them, do you think it's about accumulating dollars? 
Do you think that their end goal is just trying to get more and more and more money? Why? No, 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 no. It's not about money. It's about power. The money are points in a game, but the real end, end goal of that game is power and control. And so I think when we start to reformulate the, what the way we're thinking of their fundamental psychology in terms of it's not about the money, it's about the control, we can start to make sense of things that would seem to be against their economic interests, at least in the short term. What would be the point of depopulation? How are they going to make more money selling to people? I don't think that's what this is fundamentally about. Mm -hmm. And one example of that from history we could look at is the Great Depression, which even, uh, was it Bernanke, admitted several years ago, yes, the Federal Reserve did cause the Depression by greatly contracting the, the money supply at that point of the, uh, the Black Thursday and all of that, the, the, the market sell-off. They contracted the money supply um, greatly, which caused the Depression. And if you were thinking about it from business terms, well, businessmen like to make money. So why would they want to cause a depression? It's because they can consolidate power and control over the economy on the way down. By crashing the economy, they can actually buy up um, incredibly important and valuable assets at pennies on the dollar and get more control so that eventually when the bubble reinflates, now it, there's fewer people with greater access to wealth. Um, now, in a similar way, as you're crashing the, the population of the planet, you can get, get, uh, gain greater and greater control over that population. Who, uh, 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 I think ultimately that's what it's about. And I think that also maybe speaks to the second point, although I think there is an important point there. But look at specifically at the history of something like the Rockefeller family. And there's fascinating things you can get, even from mainstream history about it. Uh, I remember the PBS... Um, documentary about the Rockefellers, uh, probably a couple decades old at this point. But I remember there was that one point where they mentioned that as youngsters, the five Rockefeller brothers of the third generation, so John D's, John, John D. Jr.'s sons, which included David and um, Winthrop and Nelson and those five, um, uh, they played a game in which they divvied up the planet amongst the five of them. And they'd always give like, you know, Nebraska to Winthrop or something. <laughs> you know, I get Asia, you get, you know, Europe, you get, and you can have, you know, Arkansas or something. And they'd laugh about that because they're elitist scum, essentially. But anyway, that gives you an insight into the, the mindset of these people that are truly thinking in terms well beyond, again, what you or I would think. The, at best, I think most people at the lower levels of financial power and, and political power tend to think in terms of, okay, how do I make a nest egg so that I can pass something on to my children? And that's about the, the level of aspiration. But when, again, when you're, you have access to wealth that is mind-boggling to even comp to even try to wrap your mind around, you do start mm -hmm. to think, I think, of larger, longer-term projects. And I don't know if I don't know if sacrifice is really involved in those longer-term projects because it's always at all points about consolidating more and more control. So yes, John D. Senior uh, created uh, through sacrifice. He sacrificed so much of his personal wealth in this wonderful philanthropy that he was giving out to everyone. But then when you actually look at the philanthropic endeavors that he was engaged in, they were always, and in all aspects, directly financially beneficial to him and his family's economic interests. And also uh, it served to parlay that financial power into political and social power, which was what they were explicitly set up to do. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's sacrifice in some, again, in some dollars and cents sense, 
sometimes, but it's always about the greater goal that they're working towards. Now, I think there, there I have read, uh, and again, I, I'm not in touch with billionaires or trillionaires. I don't know their inner mindset, but I, I, I have read about the sort of, the, the inevitable rot and collapse that happens in multi-generational dynasties of any sort um, are also happening among the younger generations of the, the the people who have been in control of a very large agenda for a very long time. And I guess you could even look specifically, again, if you want to stick to the Rockefellers, um, you, you know, even David's children were rebelling against him um, in the, uh, uh, the culture wars of the 1960s and whatever, because you know, daddy was in uh, for the Vietnam War and, you know, we're anti-war protesters and whatever. I think there's probably a deeper level of manipulation going on there. But I think even within families, there is that that sets in. And I think, again, I this is speculation, so I'm not trying to say anything definitive here. But I think that part of the reason we are seeing the, the very obviously fast collapse and disintegration that is happening economically, politically, societally, on a global scale at this point, the craziness of the last several years has happened because a certain impatience is setting in in the younger generations that are maybe not on board with this long-term multi-generational project. I've always understood that if if I were the person in control of all of this big agenda, the best way to implement it little bit at a time, little bit at a time, little bit at a time for a very long time. You can change the entire population into believing whatever you want them to believe and going into whatever direction you want, just a little bit at a time. But go too fast, too quickly, and chaos starts to happen. And I think mm -hmm. that's a reflection of what we've seen and why they pulled the trigger so hard on COVID-19 and everything else we've seen over the last several years. I totally agree with you that it's about power and control, not money. It, to me, it brings me back to my theological training. I mean, I think at the end of the day, there's some kind of, you could call it a God complex, I guess, but there's 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 just something inside the folks who, they, yeah, they get to the point where like money's not not my object, but but I don't know. I mean, it just goes back to Aladdin. I mean, you watch Aladdin, you know, the, the whole movie that, um, you know, isn't it that uh, like, something about the, the wish you can get that you, that would be like, I would, I want to have, you can't ask for infinite wishes, but you can ask for like infinite power or something like that. And I think that like, ultimately I do think that that's what it's about. So I totally agree with you. One question I have though, about depopulation could, could you have say somebody who is like a Bill Gates who, who believes that he's doing everything. I don't, I don't know if he really believes this, but let's just, okay. Let's say best case scenario. The guy sleeps very well at night thinking that he's doing the best he can for the world. He, he just, just really believes like GMO vaccines, whatever it's all, it's just going to help people. Now, if in the venture of doing these things that he feels like is moving the direct, the world in the direction he thinks is the best way to socially engineer reality, some people die. Well, I mean, we, we need fewer people. So who cares? So does it, does the depopulation have to be like fewer people have to be the end game or could it be a byproduct that we're like okay with because we need it anyway? Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's yeah. You raise you raise an important distinction because I think the end goal isn't simply a decrease in the human population; it's a decrease in the wrong sort of the human population. Because eugenics, ultimately, going by the most generous reading, is not about killing off people; it's about helping the best to breed with the best to create this mm -hmm. super 
humans of the future. And I think that, honestly, I think that is probably what primarily motivates a lot of the people in the upper echelons of this agenda. I don't think it's a monolithic agenda. I think there are competing factions that do compete with each other. And not everyone is handed a script when they reach a certain, you know, dollar figure in their bank account. Like, okay, now you will play this role in the on agenda. I don't think that's how reality works. So I think that people are motivated by, by different things. But certainly, I think a lot of them probably genuinely do believe this is best for humanity. But humanity writ large, as in, you know, my family, my genes, the genes of these other good, wealthy elitists that I know. Yes, we want to we want to make sure they thrive and prosper in the future. And who knows, you know, maybe they think a thousand years from now there will be uh, 10 trillion human beings, but they will be the right sort, the genetically modified, you know, best human beings. So I don't think it's about an, a number per se, but it, I think it is about making sure to eliminate the the lower classes. And that was really what was driving the eugenicists from its very inception in the late 19th century. James, can you take a couple more questions? Uh, two more. Okay, two more. Oh! Okay, <laughs> which organization, institution, brand medium does the most harm in terms of the media matrix? Is it the CIA, CCP, CNN, TikTok, virtual reality? That's a, I mean, that's quite the conflation. So you've got intelligence agencies, news networks, political groupings, uh, specific social media platforms and technologies. <laughs> so I don't know how to sort through those to find out, to measure and compare how, how harmful one would be in terms of the other. But my concern, my deepest concern is at the technological layer of this, because all of the rest in a certain sense can be contingencies and certain political factions and certain corporations will come to the fore here and there. But ultimately, they are limited or unlimited by the technology itself and what it does. So I am perhaps most concerned about the trend towards the metaverse and how that will shape us as human beings. Because I don't care if it's the CIA or the CCP or some corporation or angels descended from heaven to, to steward us into some utopia. I think the technology itself will steer us towards being something that's not human anyway. So that that's my fundamental concern. Okay, which of these two would you like to answer? Can you see them on the screen? Can we look forward to any material on the Rockefeller Foundation funding the direction of the education system of the U.S.? and conspiracy to dumb down the masses, or would you like to talk about any insight on Edward Bernays and the effects of his works creating the Council on Public Relations and how this has evolved to wreak havoc on the psychological state of the U.S. today? Okay, uh, regarding the first one, I can just say that I don't have any plan in particular on Rockefeller and education. Um, I have done work on, well, I've done work on that broadly, so search Rockefeller on Corporate Report, or I, I've talked more specifically about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which a lot of people don't know I, I didn't cover it in my Bill Gates documentary because two hours wasn't enough to cover everything that Bill's involved in. But actually, a lot of people don't know his uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's foreign policy agenda is uh, about health, international global health. Its domestic U.S. based agenda is specifically about education and bringing technocracy essentially into education. I've talked about that before. I think it's important. Secondarily, on Bernays, I'm not sure what the Council on Public Relations is. I know the Council on Foreign Relations. I'm not sure if I've ever mm. heard of Council on Public Relations. Anyway, I've definitely talked about Bernays. <laughs> That's before. a good point. I, I've done several uh, podcasts and, and videos on him. So just search Bernays. Um, I think 
a very, very interesting person. But one thing to keep in mind about Bernays, um, don't take him at face value because he was a, a consummate salesman and obviously very skilled at selling things to the public. I think one of his products that he sold to the public was Edward Bernays. As in, I was so great. I was so wonderful. I was so influential. I did this. I did that. Don't take everything he says at face value. There, can I ask you really quick, with your work, you do a lot of, you call it open source. New, I mean, it's open source information, open source intelligence news, stuff like that. And this person was asking about how how you work differently versus like the mainstream media or the legacy, the legacy news, the mass media, whatever. Uh do you, did you find anything in your history that that would be more, uh, I guess, nefarious as to why it works differently than the way you do? Um, and then and then I, I don't know. I mean, it, I guess could you just finish this off by just talking about why you why yeah. you do the formats you do, yeah. uh, and do you feel like it's just you know the mass media nowadays is just fast and keeping people's attention and yeah. Or is there a reason you wouldn't you wouldn't have better sourcing and you'd have more central like you have an AP and a Reuters versus where you you're going to all these different sources and you're showing people where you're getting the information from. And a lot of times when you're reading the news nowadays, it could be coming from like one reporter for Reuters or one and, and everyone thinks like this is just gathered information. No, it's just being repeated and it came from one yeah, source. Exactly. OK, yeah, good question. And uh, just addressing the question you've got on the screen there talking about part two and I talked about uh, the experiment by right. Herbert Krugman to monitor people's brain waves while they're watching TV. And the, the person says, what year was this done? Today's news media doesn't do citations. I do do citations. So for people, anyone who does not know, I always, always, always provide sources to what I say. This case is no different. If you go to corporatereport.com slash media, you will get the complete transcript of part one and part two. And next week when it's released, part three of my documentary, which is a hyperlinked transcript. So when you go and click and you, you look at that particular section of the transcript where I'm talking about that experiment by Herbert Krugman, there will be a link to, in this case, it's a book called, I think, The Perfect Machine, The Television and the Bomb, something like that. Um, it was this really, really fascinating book written in the 1980s talking about television and the atom bomb and how they shaped the 20th century um, that talked about that experiment in more detail than I'd seen elsewhere. I've heard about this for a very long time that, you know, television hypnotizes you kind of thing in kind of vague terms. But this author, who I believe off the top of my head was Susan Nelson. Anyway, you can check it in the transcript. Um, she uh, documented uh, the, uh, the specific year, which I don't remember off the top of my head, and the name of the researcher, who he was working for. And you can follow that thread into, you know, how that experiment was repeated by others and done in various contexts, as I do in my uh, six-hour lecture course where I present that information. I present it in a lot greater detail. So if anyone's interested in really deep diving into this, please do look at my online uh, Mass Media A History course. Um, where I go into all of that. But on that, that question, the fundamental question of how I do my work and why and how it differs from the sort of mainstream media, I think this is, this is the transformation that's happened with the online revolution. So I, I, in my course in the, in the Media Matrix series, I make the point that the zenith of television um, as the primary medium for conveying information to the vastest majority of the public, at least in the Western world. Um, it, the zenith happened, I think, 
I think 9-11 is a good sort of bookend for the, the zenith of the television era because on 9-11, certainly there was the internet and you could get information on the internet. And I, uh, I remember being, uh, I was an office worker, uh, a glorified receptionist, essentially working on 9-11 and, you know, hearing all this crazy stuff going on. And I was sitting there trying to get to CNN.com to try to figure out, find out what on earth was happening. Um, and not being able to because there were too many people going to the server. Once you get there, it's a static page with very little information because it was Web 1.0. You know, you didn't get your news from the internet at that point. You got your news from newspapers, radio, and TV. And that that zenith was in the I think around the time where that that over overlap started to happen, and so suddenly you started to get information online. Now, one of the implications of that technology, television news uh, newspapers and uh, radio was uh, the the consolidation of corporate control over the media, which really happened as a result of this electronic media that was extremely expensive to produce. You needed a lot of capital to have a radio station, let alone a radio network or a television station or a satellite TV station or whatever the case may be. The average person is not going to be able to do that in the same way that an average person could set up a print workshop back 500 years ago and start printing books or at any rate, pay a printer to print a book. It, wa it wasn't prohibitively expensive for a lot of the people a lot of the time. Um, but once that started, that control started to happen, the technology became too sophisticated. The consolidation happened to the point where by the end of the uh, 20th century, the, these, the, the media, uh, press barons and the TV station owners became so hubristic about their gatekeeping function that they thought nothing could ever come along to disrupt that. So why? I mean, look, people buy a newspaper and you're reading, this is what the New York Times says happened yesterday. And they say the government released some report and it says this. In the old paradigm, okay, well, how are you going to, I mean, you have to take the word that the New York Times is not lying about this. Okay, there was some government report and it does say these words. Okay, and then they put it into some context for you to understand. How else could, could you do that in the newspaper format? How else could you do that with a radio broadcast or a TV broadcast that's being sent to you? But the online revolution, suddenly, yeah, you can write about the report that the government released yesterday and you can include a link to that report so that people can read it. But it was fascinating for me sitting there in 2006, 2007, when I started the website, looking at the you know New York Times website or any any other mainstream news media website web presence. You would you could read an article online, but there would never be a link. They would never think to even link mm -hmm. to a report if they say a report was released yesterday. Again, they're just expecting you'll just take it. Okay, oh, oh New York Times is reporting it. Okay. But, no, I'm sitting here in you know 21st century and going, no, this isn't the way, why on earth? This is the internet. I can link to people to that report. I can link people to this document. They can get there directly. Why wouldn't I do that? Why, why on earth wouldn't I? And I yeah. have noted that in recent years, it has finally, the New York Times and others have finally started, learned how to make a hyperlink. And so now they will occasionally, they will have links to reports and things that they talk about. Um, but it took an awfully long time to get there, didn't it? And uh, I, I think it's it's just it's it's one of those things that indicate a mindset. It's a it's a gatekeeping mindset versus mm -hmm. an I am trying to convey information mindset. Mm -hmm. And so that's always been a core ethos of what I do and why I do it. I'm not here trying to tell people what to think, 
you must believe this. I am putting out information that I think is interesting. I think it's important. I think you should take a look at it. And here's where I got it from. Mm -hmm. That's that's what fundamentally motivates me, which is, I think, far different than what, you know, the Soulsbergers over at the New York Times is, motivates them. Yeah, you're not assuming that people will just buy whatever you're selling, whereas yeah. they well, are. Exactly, they yeah. There you go. Corbett doesn't quite sell sell the uh, the story in the same way, you know, New York Times yeah. or whatever. You know, that's a name we know they're trusted. But who, yeah. you know, Corbett, who, who's that? I don't, I don't mm -hmm. care. So yeah, in a sense, I mean, why would you trust me? But I honestly, I think, obviously, I think we should take down that mental barrier we have and, and apply it equally to everyone. Why trust the New York Times? Right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. It, it, it really does remind me too, like going back to, I know I've quoted my seminary training very many times during this, but, but it is all about like existential, you know, or the existence and, and, and how we relate to each other and all that stuff. And it reminds me of how we used to discuss Christianity as the oppressed religion versus Christianity as now, uh, you know, one of the major global religions. And can you take the, the teachings of this tiny group of people that were being executed and what does it look like when all of a sudden now they've got the power? Like, does it work the same way? And, and when you look at different pockets of Christianity in different parts of the world where you may still be the oppressed, how does that play out versus, you know, where it's mainstream in Alabama? And, and is it the same even religion altogether? And it kind of, for you, it's, it's like when you're talking about truth or information dissemination or whatever else, like is Corbett the, you know, little Christian church of the first century, um, you know, versus like what mainstream media is now is like Christianity of, you know, the United States of America and, 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 and the, the negativities that have come along with it. I don't know. It just, you just don't assume that, that you own people, I guess. And you're like, no, I'm trying to, to show you where it is. Okay. So I promise I'm letting you go right now, but I just, what's your best advice to people? As, as your parting words, best advice for people who are like sifting through all this information, they're in the media matrix and they, they want to do the best they can to not be completely fooled uh, or clowned by it. What, what should they do? How do you find truth? How, where, where do you go or what's your process? Uh, my short pithy answer would be don't strap on the goggles. Um, but I guess the more detailed answer would be that we have to, at the very least, be conscious of what we are doing, how we are doing it, why we are doing it in the ways that we are doing it, um, in order to have a fighting chance at this. Because if we are not consciously and deliberately thinking about the ways that we are interacting in and with the world, then unfortunately, we will be steered into blind alleys and uh, unfortunately, sometimes into slaughter pens by people who do not have our best interest at heart. So... Um, it's not a popular message. It's not one that people want to hear, but unfortunately it's the truth. There is no shortcut to understanding the world. You have to put in the effort to truly understand what is happening, why it is happening and what you can do about it. Now, I guess there is an answer that's the easier answer, which is to detach from it all and to, okay, that's it. I'm going to go live in the woods and be completely self-sufficient. And if you can do that, and if that brings you fulfillment in some sense great awesome obviously who am i to tell you otherwise great go do it I, I don't think that's probably going to be the likely answer for most of the people in this audience so we have to understand that we are steeped in this matrix of control that comes through these technologies that we but dimly comprehend let alone how are they interacting and and, and acting on us so 
again, I want people to be at the very least conscious of this history, the way that it has played out in the past so that we can, uh, uh, this is a core part of my message that I keep coming back to. We can shape history. We are not spectators in some spectator sport that's happening around us. We are actors in history, making things happen by our choices, by our actions, by what we choose to do. So we have a part to play in this. And I just want people at the very least to be informed about the great contest, the struggle for the human species that is happening around us right now, that uh, I think media is perhaps the battlefield in which that, 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 that war is being waged. Um, because ultimately, I, I think whatever happens in the coming years, it is going to that that information is going to filter to us through the media. So we better be at the very least consciously aware of the media, how it shapes us, how it um, acts upon our consciousness so that we can at the very least decide for ourselves. And this isn't something that I'll come in and tell each person what to do with their lives, but you have to consciously make that decision of how best to use this technology or to put it to the side and in what ways. And as I say, I'm not, I'm not the guru. I'm not telling people what to do with their lives. I'm not going to tell them how to, or what to think. I'm going to hopefully provide resources so that they can do that. And, um, I, I'm also interested in the ways, the various ways people interpret this. So if there are people out there who want to get involved and join the conversation and start talking about their thoughts on these subjects, that is, I think the way forward, not any one person trying to tell people how to live their lives. And is that how people can support you going to the corporate report and participating, like not just by watching, but you can donate over at your site too, right? Uh, more than that, you can subscribe. So I do have a subscription okay. system. Um, people can subscribe either monthly or yearly. And uh, as a subscriber, you can log on to leave comments on the, the various okay. media productions. And uh, you can access a subscriber newsletter that I put out each weekend. Um, and in that newsletter, in fact, there's always a link to a subscriber discount code. So for example, if you are interested in the online media course that I've been talking about, six and a half hours of lectures on this subject, uh, you can get 25% off entering your subscriber discount code. If there are any Corporate Report subscribers out there who don't know how to access that code, and I know there are, every time I say this, there are a few who get, get in touch with me, please do contact me through the contact form and I will help sort that out for you. Okay. James Corbett, the busiest man on earth, probably. Uh, thank you so <laughs> much days, for taking yes. the time for us. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for talking about this. As as I know you know, this is an incredibly important topic and not enough people, I think, are really talking about it. So thank you for having me on.